PowerQuest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. PowerQuest is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Chris Grabowski. Hello. This week's episode, The Spam Box. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to my left is the wonderful Chris Grabowski. Hello. How are you? Oh, hello. Hello. I'm doing just fine. Good. Good. How was your day? How was your weekend? Pretty good. Got to see my folks. Oh, yeah? yeah. They, uh, did you did you see them for Mother's Day last week? or No, they couldn't make it into the city, so we did it this week instead. Were they on one of those Long Island trains that can't make it to Penn Station? No, instead they were in Long Island traffic. They couldn't make it across the bridge for literally an hour. Which bridge? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, they came up by my hood, so I think the Queensboro Bridge. Uh, I, th- I think they took the Queensboro. Yeah. Why wouldn't they take the tunnel? Uh, that's usually even worse. No, but I thought they built the tunnel to take the traffic off the bridge. That's why it's yeah. told. The bridge isn't told, but the tunnel is. Yeah, but why would that ever work? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yes, and uh, let's not talk about trains because we only have a limited amount of time to do the show today. We have a hard stop in about an hour, which is good for the people that don't like us going on for too long, but bad for those of us who like getting uh, deep into content. Um, So today's show, let's get right to it, is about... Hey, I said today's show is about... Come on. Melta. Melta. That's right, email. Do you, want, do you want me to play the rest of the song? No, but I know it. That, yeah, I, th- that was, I think most that was of us, one. I think most of us alive in the late 90s know it. Even um, though I th- at first I thought the first word was Meltar, which reminded me of uh, the original Toonami. Oh. Yeah. No, that's much too cool. For this <laughs> this episode's about email that's right electronic mail i thought was a much simpler topic to distill into no uh, I, w- I warned you it, you warned me i did not heed your advice it. and uh i am regretting it now no i'm not regretting it now i just realized what's happened what happened was this christian you know we've been alive for a while we've been mm. on the internet for a while when we started out in the internet email was pretty simple and no, uh, it was uh Pretty complex, even back in the days of the uh, modem. What the dial-up modems? I should say. I, okay. I don't, I don't think that the. Well, no, you're right. It was still years of meetings of standards bodies before you yeah, could get to it. Basically, since it's been a publicly available thing, it's been pretty complex. That was some. That was one of those things that were, that was figured out pretty early on in the world of academia of how to use it, which is probably why it's so complex. Well, I mean, but, I think it's it's also complex because you have standards bodies, which are bureaucrats, arguing yeah. with each other for years. and then Yeah, but that's one that definitely has to be standardized completely. But, oh, absolutely, but, yeah. because you ha- it has to interoperate between completely different carriers. They don't mm-hmm. talk to each other. So you do need a standard. And in fact, the modern email standard is not the first one that was used. The first one that was used was X400. Did you hear about that? Yeah. What I, was X400? I... I would not remember offhand, but... Well, I actually, do, I made a big mistake. I do know mistake. that that was an authentication uh, thing. Uh, yeah, it provided kind of authentication. Actually, we made, yes. we made a big mistake. I forgot to talk about, to recap from last week about the ransomware, because it's a big deal. Let's take a quick mm-hmm. tangent. I know we're pressed for time, but we really should talk about the ransomware, because it's a big oh, deal. Because of people who are just going around emailing people saying that they are the ransomware, and if they don't pay... 
a certain amount of money, not in Bitcoin, which the actual ransomware is asking for, but in cash to a certain uh, Indian company at uh, 4 p.m. Indian time. Well, first, first, let's let's take it easy first. A couple of things. We said last week that it was Windows XP or developers maybe trying to get Windows XP off the face of the earth. Not a bad thing. Um, Who may have invented this? We were wrong because, in fact, most computers that were infected with WannaCry ran Windows 7. That also and the makes New York, a lot of sense. I, I, it does make a lot of sense because it's the most popular operating system, I think, of Windows. Let's say full stop. It's probably better than 10. Uh, and the New York Times actually has a really a nice animated infographic that shows the worldwide infection of WannaCry over the course of last week. Um, and if you just search for that in Google, you'll find it. If we had a page that showed show notes, we, we could post it there. But we don't. So look it up. Um, yeah. Uh, so first, WannaCry was heavily localized. There's this website uh, where you can see a nice screenshot of WannaCry installed, or WannaCry appearing on installations of Windows around the world. It's in a bunch of different languages. It's on an, an Italian ATM machine. It's, I mean, it's everywhere. I'm, I, I'm sure it's at some Walmart self-checkout machine somewhere in America. <laughs> um, because, you know, those are connected to the Internet and never updated. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, as geez, just scrolling through this, I mean, they have it in Japanese, they have it everywhere. Everything has a localized version, which is great in the era of globalized computing and the era of everybody can be anywhere. But it's very, very bad for the victims of these ransomware, which is, or this ransomware, which is a lot of people. Um, was actually mostly Windows 7, which stinks, but like we said last week, Microsoft has patched all this stuff. So go update, run Windows update. When it said, this time, when it says, do you want us to install updates, say yes. Take the f- few minutes to an hour, because it's Windows, and let it do its thing. Um, what happens with any successful exploit, any successful major crime, is that you get copycats. And one of the copycats, like you said, Christian, were people that were not affiliated with this at all, that slapped together a visibly horrible email message that tried to solicit actual money from people. And it says, and if you want, I can do the accent, but, you know, it says, we represent WannaCry ransomware, and we will put your site under attack. Or, did okay. they establish that they're Russian? I don't, I don't think know. So. It just fits with the di- the dialogue. Uh, uh, I think that's mildly racist there. Uh, no, Russians are a race. Anyway, we represent at WannaCry ransomware, and we will put your site under attack through massive botnet under our control. We will put it under attack effective 4 p.m. Thursday Indian time. Wait a second. You know, everybody in the media are assuming Russia is up to everything. So to say this might be possibly Russia is no way is nothing. Well, I called it on that Indian time thing because oh, uh, you're right, Indian time. Yeah, no, see that's yeah, a way no, that, for them that, to that was the fake email, by the way. That's not the actual ransomware guys. No, I know it's not the actual. What did I just say? Are you listening to the show? <laughs> yeah, I but said you, it was you, their you're copycats. You're talking a mile a minute. Oh, the copycats. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, we have a lot to get to, so I've got to crank it up um, or do some crank. Um, Okay, I'm sorry. You're right. They're probably Indians. I won't do that accent. But uh, we will put it under... Wow, that's still racist, though. What? Although, yeah, Indian time, okay. Indian time. Come on. This is not... Anyway. Uh, We will put it under attack, effective 4 p.m. Thursday, Indian time. We will take it down promptly, but we will interrupt you to annoy your users unless you decide to pay us two bitcoins. You have, un- you have time until tomorrow, 9 p.m. Indian time, to decide, after which we will unleash our botnet on your site, and then the ransom will increase by one Bitcoin daily as long as you decide to delay and waste our time. That, 
that's not how ransomware works. Now, what they didn't do is the biggest problem with ransom with with these things. They didn't enclose a call to action to actually pay them, so they're full of BS. But the email that they have underscores something interesting. They're using this service called Mail to Tor, and to jump back into email, Mail to Tor is a really cool way that you can uh, you can set up a, a, a self destructing email account. There are other ways, there are other uh, vendors that do self-destructing email accounts like Mailinator or uh, 10-Minute Mail, but mail to tor encrypts all of your messages and uh, will delete the account as I'm trying to pull it up because this was actually at the end of the list for today. Anyway, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, other stuff's been happening on the internet. Uh, <laughs> the FCC yeah. is trying to kill net neutrality. Uh, yeah. There have been a bunch of bots that are trying to fight the people that John Oliver told to go protest uh, the FCC trying to destroy net neutrality. So that's kind of funny. Um, either way, it's probably not going to make a difference. They're going to do what they want, and we're just going to have to live with it. So that's a nice... If you want to fight the botnet, make your own botnet that calls the FCC or comments to the FCC and says, from a bunch of connect through different VPNs, have different IP addresses with different names and styles of writing... And say, it was good. It was actually good what Tom Wheeler did, even though those rules didn't take effect yet. And um, don't repeal them because once they've had a chance to take effect, they'll be really good. I mean, I actually went and myself uh, filled one out physically. But really? Yeah. Uh, after watching the John Oliver thing, just went to go FCCYourself.com. Yeah. It is it's a link that'll forward you right to the web form to fill out for uh, signing the petition directly to the FCC. Uh, you can also, of course, create a bot, which now I am very tempted to do. I think, like I said, because there was a bot already created to fight the good people, I think the good people need a bot to fight the other bots. And the mm. bad bot is, is using really advanced technology because it was coded pretty well. So, well, it sounds like it was paid for. By Verizon. Yeah, imagine that. By the way, on John Oliver's list of awful cable companies and internet service providers, he left off the internet service provider that also owns HBO. Funny how they don't have commercials, but they still can't insult the parent companies. You think they have editorial freedom when, in fact, they're just as bad as everybody else. Maybe maybe slightly better. Anyway, uh, 11 minutes in. Okay. Uh, You want to do a really quick newsreel? Here, Here, we'll do one really quickly. Okay. Nobody on presents knows Toyos. Teresa May wants to kill encryption again. <laughs> that was her best newsreel so far. <laughs> and we're done. I was thinking about it. I know we're pressed for time. I wrote out this whole thing, but like the, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the long and short of it. Like we said yeah. last week, she and Macron and Merkel and... Well, Comey now she's proposing her own internet. Wants, yeah, internet. She wants to make her own internet, which is not going to happen. She's just going to try. One thing that I don't understand is how can one country regulate what's on a global market without everybody else agreeing? They can't. They can't. But they can try. And the EU loves trying to mess with American companies that run the internet. And they're going to try it again. Any way that any country in Europe can levy fines against an American technology giant, they're working on ways right now. I'm sure there's a think tank that their whole job is to figure out how we can make these well, American companies pay the us way more money. all of uh, European government seems to work is to assume your country is the best, which is also the case for America. Basically, all <laughs> Western civilization. Yeah, most governments, I believe. Yeah. Except for Canada, they realize that we're the best, but that's fine. Yeah, they um, just apologize for everything. Yeah. 
Which, you know, sometimes... I mean, we have to apologize for our president. That's another Except story. for Ruffles All Dressed. They, uh, they're very proud of having that, whatever that is. Oh, that's with... Uh, All Dressed is the works. So it has, like... Is it? Of, I, yeah. I heard it was, like, just, like, it's a very own... Very, uh... No, when it, you order like, something, instead of saying, like... Oh, works, no, I know. Tra- I know traditionally All Dressed is the works, basically. But I, I think in this specific case of Ruffles, I, I believe... It's actually a uh, particular uh, sauce. It's not just like salt and vinegar? No, it's like a particular sauce that has like all these spices and ingredients. Yeah. You know what they also have in Canada that they will not sell in the U.S.? And I did see it also in Israel. Is ke- ketchup-flavored Pringles. Oh, yeah. I've heard of those. I've wanted to try them. As also, soon as, milk as soon and as bags. Milk and bags. Tim Hoare. Anyway, getting off track. Back to... Meltar. Okay, back to email. Um, email's been around since the 70s. Honestly, it's been around in various incarnations earlier than that. Uh, in 1965, MIT's compatible time-sharing system, the CTSS, in 1961, uh, allowed multiple users to log on to a central system from remote dial-up terminals and store and share files on a central disk. Informal methods of using this to pass messages were developed and expanded. So in 65... They had the CTSS mail. Uh, but, you know, in other, or in 1962, I don't know why this is not chronological, there was uh, other, basically, ways for universities and large bureaucratic organizations to message each other without actually sending a letter to each other. And this all started in the 60s, and then it kind of slowly evolved in the 70s. In the 70s, um, Send Message, a local inter-user mail program incorporating the Experimental File Transfer Program, CPYNet, I'm guessing that's CopyNet, allowed the first networked electronic mail. In 1972 was the first Unix mail program, uh, also in 72 with the APL Mailbox by uh, Larry Breed. Uh, 74, there was more stuff. In 78, the Mail Client, it was just called Mail. Uh, looks like Apple wasn't original. Written by Kurt Schoens for Unix and distributed by the second Berkeley software distribution, included support for aliases and distribution lists, forwarding, formatting messages, and accessing different mailboxes. That was 1978. 79 was another messaging system in the early 80s. More, more mail messaging systems uh, proliferated. There's one Profs, P-R-O-F-S by IBM, All-in-One by Digital Equipment Corporation, and HP Mail by Hewlett-Packard. Um, they were superseded in the early 1980s by mail clients that ran on local area networks, uh, like WordPerfect Office and Microsoft Mail. I miss Microsoft Mail. Oh, and Lotus Notes, of course. You ever use Lotus Notes? Nope. Nope. It's okay. Uh, it's very 1993. And it still yep. runs. Hey, I believe that is a unit test for uh, future versions of Windows. That's why they say... Windows ain't done until Lotus will run. Um, yeah, Microsoft Mail. Microsoft, that was before they created Outlook or Outlook Express. Um, a lot of stuff. Uh, when my mom was a teacher's aide in the 90s, she used Microsoft Mail in her, in her school district. I thought it was really cool. Uh, it was because email was, I don't know, it was so cool to use it. Um... There was that send message program written for Unix that allowed people to... Uh, send messages, and then somebody rewrote that. Well, if I remember, the original send message wasn't even like a over the wire. It was 
you're all logged in to a mainframe and you send a message to other users on the mainframe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the early 70s, Ray Tomlinson, who's the guy who's created with uh, developing email, even though it was really a group effort, as you can see, developed uh, updated an existing utility called SendMessage so it could copy messages as files over the network. Lawrence Roberts, the project manager for the ARPANET development, took the idea of ReadMail, which dumped all recent messages onto the user's terminal, and wrote a program for 10x and Tecoma, I don't know what those are, called RD, I'm guessing that's read, which permitted access to individual messages. Barry Wessler then updated RD and called it NRD. Blah, blah, blah. Other people updated it, including read access uh, for sending a help system. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, John Vital then updated send message to include three important commands. Move, the combined save and delete command. Answer, uh, determine to whom an open reply should be sent and forward to forward the mail and then he renamed all of that message or msg and that was the first real congealing of sending a message to somebody else electronically um yeah there were other email early how many of those messages of the original message uh, program were just ascii middle fingers (laughs) no they were probably just like q Hey, did you get a Q? No. <laughs> no, I got a T. Damn it. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, ARPANET mail, experimental mail transfers between remote computer systems began shortly after the creation of ARPANET in 1969. Ray Tomlinson, like I said, the guy crea- credited with creating email, is generally credited as having sent the first email across the network and initiating the use of the at symbol to separate the names of the, for the user and the user's machine in 1971. Yeah. Um, as the influence of the ARPANET spread across academic communities, gateways were developed to pass mail to and from other networks such as CSNet, JANet, BitNet, X400, and FidoNet. This often involved addresses such as something really long at some domain dot something dot com, uh, which routes mail to a user with a bang path address at a UUCP host. What is a bang path? Um, I would not know, honestly. That is really a, uh... That means two things. Yeah, that is a hard one to go for. Yeah, jeez. An email address of this form was known as a bang path. Bang paths, uh, what was this? Uh, could be used to send mail, but it's a format. It's just a format that allows you to derive where the stuff was going to. In a specific hmm. format. Uh, bank paths of 8 to 10 machines or hops were not uncommon in 1981, and late-night dial-up UUCP links would cause week-long transmission times. Imagine waiting a week to send an email or receive an email. Snail Mail 2.0. Snail Mail 2.0, yeah. The pseudo-domain ending .uucp was sometimes used to designate a host name as being reachable by networking, although this was never formally registered in the domain name system. So they actually developed uh, a fake TLD. But back mm-hmm. then, it probably was not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, in general, like older email address formats, bang paths have now been superseded by the at notation. There you go. Um, there's a lot of stuff. Email has a lot of components. Yep. Yes, it does. It I does. warned you. I know. There's a lot of components. There's... Uh, actually, yeah, there's... 
I mean, there's the way that you send it, there's the message transfer service, there's the message transfer agent, there's the message user agent, there's the message store, there are relay servers, there are block lists, there are blacklists, there are domain keys, there's, hmm. uh, I forgot what SPS stands for. Uh, I mean, you look a, at, like, just as what goes Sender policy you. frameworks, there's a lot of stuff that all goes into, I'm sending you an ASCII middle finger. Yeah. That's a lot. The um, but you know, like you look at uh, all the stuff that goes into uh, like just serving your own uh, mail server or like I don't know, I read mail or something, or uh, running um, uh, like mail clients themselves. Like yeah, anything that's really substantial that uh, to either build a mail client or to run a mail server it takes a lot of work. Actually, that. Uh, both from a security standpoint, because just to be able to filter out spam, as well as uh, uh, to be able to actually, uh, sometimes there's that concern of privacy of all of your email on somebody else's server, which, uh, you know, if you're the Richard Stallman type, you're only running open source mail servers that you host yourself. Or you could use mail to Tor, where it, it's everything is encrypted, mm-hmm. and then you can delete the messages. I mean, it also, in uh, contrast, there's a lot of these messengers now that are trying to replace email that are more of the instance, instant messenger types, but they're stored forever. Yes, like Slack or Hangouts or Skype. Yeah, I, and I'd even say uh, for like the privacy situation, you got things like Telegram. You, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I thought you were you were going on a list. I mean, there's other ones. I can't think of them offhand. Uh, there's like, um, I mean, there's also GPG. Well, uh, GPG is not. Uh, or sorry, PGP. Type, PGP. That, that, yeah, GPG is a type of PGP. It's the okay. GNU. The GNU, GNU PGP. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's which, the GNU Privacy that, Guard. I'm sorry. I meant, that's a, I meant uh, GP, uh, PGP. You that's can, a there's signature. an extension that allows you to transparently send PGP mail in Gmail. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, uh, so do I. It's just. It's not that that makes it more private, actually. What it does is it's a signature saying that this is, in fact, this person that you say they are. Well, let's, let's pin that because we'll talk about email security later. While, we'll, while we're still talking about the early days of email, I wanted to touch on X400. It has a weird name, and it was the first standard for sending electronic messages uh, created by the government. And it was superseded by SMTP. And that ran on the regular internet. X400 ran on the uh, ARPANET. Uh, message handling is a distributed... Uh, let me do the thing. Uh, we got it, you know, once, once an episode. <laughs> I always forgot... And I always forget which stupid one... Here we go. Message handling is a distributed information processing task that integrates two related subtasks. Message transfer and message store. The International Telecommunications Unit, ITUT, recommends uh, recommendations to find specific protocols for a wide range of communication tasks. For example, the P1 protocol is used explicitly for communication among mail transfer agents. The B3 between the user agent and the MTA, and the P7 between the user agent and the message store. In the 1994 version, P7 was enhanced to provide folders in the message store and allow storage of submitted messages and provide many automatic actions such as auto-foldering and a correlation of replies, delivering reports, and receipt notifications with submitted messages. It's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So that was like, 1994. Auto, auto foldering, correlation of replies, delivery reports, receipt notifications, 94 in X400. X400 also uh, has been used as the core of Microsoft Exchange Server. Huh, that explains a lot. So, well, the thing is, is that X400 has security built in. SMTP does not. It was an add-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, X400, let's see. Um, they have their own message format, which is not the same as the bang path, and it's not the same as the at format. But you have your uh, global identification, domain identification, uh, country name, and it's like a whole, like basically registering a domain name. We have your country name, your administrative division, your private management domain, organization name, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you just separate it all by semicolons, and uh, that's a probably a really long address. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the first large-scale use was conducted in the U.S. under a military communication contract in 1992 to 1997. So, yeah. Um, it has security features built in rather than SMTP after the fact. It, pre- it predates TCP IP, actually. So it was meant to ride on one of the primordial OSI transport layers that was not TCP. Um, well probably UDP because you need to be in the user space to control it so you're just basically sending raw packets just raw but, packets yeah um, it lost to SMTP in terms of popularity but X400 is still used by enterprises where security is important including the US military and was the heart of the exchange Microsoft Exchange server until 2007 hmm. so yeah uh, SMTP the simple mail transfer protocol is something that I once wrote by hand when I was in high school to write a program that can spam people because 15 years ago, uh, mail servers were a lot, a lot less secure. And a lot of people had semantically named email addresses. Hmm. If, you, if you knew how to use SMTP, when I say use SMTP, I mean you could tell net. It runs on port 25 if it's unsecured. Uh, you can tell net to that port, and if you know the protocol, you can just write a message. So when I was in high school, I figured out that I mean, it's not, not rocket science. Every, every faculty member had their first initial dot, their last name, at the school. So then you could just say, mess, you know, from this teacher, carrot, email address, to this other teacher, carrot, email address. Subject, go fuck yourself. Excuse me. <laughs> I forgot where we were. But you can do that. And, you wow. know, I was, I was 17. Um, yeah, earlier, sorry, I was 15. Um... Yeah, and you could you know you could say that when someone gets this message, wow, why did they say this? <laughs> Who's been doing that? And if you do it properly, and especially back, I should say, especially back then, the it, you really couldn't tell the difference between a legitimate email that was, especially because it was sent in the domain, it was sent within the same network, oh, yeah. so it, it wasn't even like yeah. if they turn off relaying for external hosts, that's totally fine because I'm already in the network. I mean, uh, clearly that should have been used to leave, like, the best memos ever. Like, and clearly attention faculty, kind of awful Please suspension. only use the faculty bathrooms for their uh, intended use. Do not set up slip and slides in them. Uh, how about who pooped in the sink? I, I, I wanted to go there, but I thought I shouldn't go there. But <laughs> It's fine. That's enough explicit content for now. Mm-hmm. Um, SMTP, uh, you, uh, I, I, should we even... Talk about the protocol itself. I mean, I think a lot of people don't actually know about it. The protocol itself, you start off by saying hello. Wow, that's crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. And based on... And this is a very bare SMTP. We'll talk about add-ons to SMTP that make it uh, more secure in a minute. But right now, 
you say hello or hello in your host name. This way, if the server filters based on host, even though that is, of course, entirely fudgeable because you're just typing it in, or a program is typing it in. Um, well, I mean, SMTP was also designed originally to be within an intranet, not an internet. Ah, so. Well, that's probably why they just assumed, much like the early versions of Windows and Mac OS, they just assumed that everyone who had access to the computer was a good guy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why uh, the security, they have to, they, it's, it's kind of awkward for them to bolt on after the fact, because like X400, like Windows NT, like Unix, they need to be designed from the ground up with security in mind, with multiple users in mind, with authentication in mind, to create a really secure system. And this type of backwards flow that we've created with modern email and SMTP is precisely the reason why spam is so much of a problem, why phishing is so much of a problem, and why we have to have so many other layers of security, because they're all on attacking symptoms, but not necessarily the cause, which is something that we can't really fix 20, 30 years uh, on. So, you say hello to the server, and you give your domain name. And then you say, new line. All of these are terminated by new lines. Mail from colon. You have your name or whatever, display name, uh, carrots, your email, bob at example.org. Hit enter. The server will say, hopefully, it'll say something like okay and give you an, uh, an error code of 250. One thing to also keep in mind is this is also done, done over TCP, so you have... When you think about all the packets going back and forth for this, you've got everything doing the SYN, the SYNACT, all those things uh, at TCP level, and then you have these doing the hello, hello, host, all that. That and seems then, very overheady. Well, no, it's to ensure that your message is delivered. Okay. Um, you can send the message to multiple people with multiple RCPT, receipt two. So you can say receipt two, Christian at Grabowski.org. Well, RCPT... It's a command, though, right? There's the mail command, RCPT, and the data command. Yes, and quick. Which mail is the return address, RCPT is, is the recipient. Sending the re oh, recipient, not receipt. I'm sorry. And then the data is Data is, is the, the body. And, yeah. yeah, and then you end the body with a period on a blank line. And then yep. it'll say, okay, good job. And then you say quit. It says goodbye. And that's it. Your mail begins its long journey down the internet. To another mail server, where it may get bounced back because of a variety of reasons. Um, relaying is a, is a big problem. In the earlier days of the internet, uh, you could more, you, it, it was, I guess, more acceptable, but also more necessary to kind of relay race email around the internet. And what happened, it, what happened was people used to just leave these open mail relays, or just, sorry, people used to leave these mail relays open. And so, with the zero security, you could do a lot of stuff. And, and of, of course, involving that thing with the buffer overflows and exploits on the servers. Well, yes, no, but uh, uh, another part about uh, relay uh, mail relays that uh, is interesting is the fact that uh, the DNS involves for email. Uh, norm normally, in an email server, you use an MX record to look up, but with a relay, you actually use an A record. So it's even more overhead to do all the uh, DNS resolution. Oh, interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes, we should also mention that the mail exchange is a completely separate part of the domain name system. Uh, that's, even though it may have the same domain as your website, it's a completely different DNS record, and it's accessed a completely different way. Um, the original design of SMTP had no facility to authenticate users or check that servers were authorized to send on their behalf. 
with the result that email spoofing is, of course, possible, much like I showed you from my real-world, thank God I didn't actually get in trouble, example. I did get in trouble later on, but that's another story. Um, hmm. They thought I had hacked something because I had done stuff like this earlier, hmm. but I didn't. Um, anyway. Uh, let's see, did we miss anything with Open Relay? Uh, no? Uh, it's, now it's now generally considered a bad practice, and it's worthy of email blacklisting. Blacklisting. <laughs> it's a big problem, actually. Uh, my email, pneumonium.com, was recently... Take it easy. My uh, email at pneumonium.com was recently blacklisted. You can find out if you go to a website called MX Toolbox and type in your email address or just the domain name. It'll run through a list of common blacklists and then tell you which one it's on. And if any of these, let's say, 20 blacklists has you on it, you have to figure out how to get yourself off, and that's not necessarily easy. Easiest point, actually, easiest way is to declare yourself as a church. I can't do that. I'm Jewish. I know. Well, actually, any religious organization, technically. Well, then I I actually, if I did that... And I could probably because become tax they free. are they are actually uh, exempt from. Uh, do you not need to put stuff. one of those uh, unsubscribe me buttons? You do not need to say really. That this, yeah, you do not have to say that this person requested your email or anything like that. You can just send email to anyone all you want if you're a religious organization. Huh. That's good to know. <laughs> well, then you know what? Sign me up, and we don't have to pay tax. Your apartment's going to become a temple. I have a mezuzah on the door already, so why not? Um, anyway, uh, let's see. So that's SMTP. Uh, we talked about message transfer agents. We talked about uh, email forwarding. is a li is is funny. It's not why I shouldn't say I shouldn't say funny, it, but it's hmm. interesting because it's uh, that another. It's another one of these is more complex than originally let on. Um, there are two types of forwarding. There's server-based forwarding and client-based forwarding. Server-based forwarding is uh, primary servers can deliver a message to a user's mailbox and or forward it by changing some envelope address or uh, tilde dot forward files. Um, and then actually, I'm sorry, the dot forward files allow you to set up forwarding addresses for your email box if you put that in. So when an, on a Unix mail server, when a message is delivered to your account, which means if I'm running a Unix mail server and it's eric at pneumonium.com, they'll, they'll look for a user Eric. And if Eric has a dot .forward in his uh, user folder, then they'll read that and they'll say, oh, where does he want to forward the mail to? Let's go send it here. And then that really quickly, also without, I believe, with minimally changing the headers, uh, will forward the mail. You won't get that on behalf of that uh, a lot of servers like to do. They like stamping, putting their stamp on your email. Uh, let's see. Um, the equivalent to the X powered by... Exactly. No, you're right. Email yep. administrators sometimes use redirection as a synonym for so server-based email forwarding to different recipients. Protocol engineers sometimes use the term mediator to refer to a forwarding server. Because of spam, it is increasingly difficult to reliably forward mail across different domains, and some recommend avoiding it all, it at all, if possible. Uh, there's forwarding versus remailing. Plain text message forwarding changes the envelope recipients and leaves the envelope sender field untouched. The envelope sender field does not equate to the from header, does not equate to the from header, which email client software usually displays. It represents a field used in the early stages of the SMTP protocol and subsequently saved as the return path header. 
This field holds the address to which mail systems must send bounce messages, reporting delivery failure or success, if any. By contrast, the terms remailing or redistribution can sometimes mean resending the message and also rewriting the envelope sender field. Electronic mailing lists furnish a typical example. Authors submit messages to a reflector that performs the remailing to each list address. That way, bounce messages, which report a failure delivering a message, will not reach the author of a message. However, annoying misconfigured vacation auto-replies do. I actually wondered about that. Are, mm. the, are the combating auto-replies handled at the mail server level, or is that handled at the mail client level? I think it's open to inter- uh, implementation. That's really bad. Yeah. Because, I mean, isn't that a Mentos and Diet Coke situation that could honestly bring down a lot of the internet if everybody's autoresponders started, started autoresponding to everybody else? Yep, which I think would make a lot of sense to have on the server then. But uh, it's also the case that, I mean, email these days, I wonder, how, I would not know how they combat that. But if it were that it's on the internet level, which, you know, I think a lot of places still have... I don't like think that, that could be on the internet level. Intra. Oh, intra. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, like, I know plenty of companies still have, uh, like, the you-can-only-send-within-your-company option. And that's where the I'm on vacation emails uh, get sent in some cases, which that might actually be handled on the server and be able to uh-huh. say, okay, th- this is an auto-reply, re- uh, uh, don't uh, send an auto-reply back. I wish there was some kind of bit that we could set to say, like, a human didn't send this message. It's automatically generated. This way you could flag it. But, of course, that probably, too, can be spoofed because it has to operate on a virtually clear channel. Okay. Well, actually, now that I think about auto-reply, I'm almost positive it has to be on the server. Just because the only one I was questioning was Outlook for that possibly being in the client. But I know from the last time I used Outlook several years ago... It is, in fact, on the server. So, uh, yeah, auto-replies on the server. Interesting. You think it just does some, like, some quick regex for the, uh, for, like, a, I don't no, know. No, it stores the data that this is on set on auto-reply, this uh, particular uh, But address. wait, what server is, is sending that? That's not the, the remote email server. server. No, which email server? That is sending the auto-reply. This only works on intranet. I have no idea how the internet would work. Yeah, that's what I, okay. But- Okay, that that makes sense then. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, some more protocols. We talked about SMTP. Actually, you know, let me reorganize this because I just found. Let's bring this up. SMTP hacks and how to guard against them. There are, here are some common SMTP hacks because, like we said, it's typically insecure. However, in most modern implementations, which probably exclude uh, running locally inside of a protected network. Most of the time, modern email services use SMTP over SSL or TLS, where everything is end-to-end encryption, which will soon become illegal in many countries. Anyway, SMTP hacks and how to guard against them. Some hacks exploit weaknesses in the simple mail transfer protocol. This email communication protocol was, de- was designed for functionality, not security. So ensuring that you have some level of security will help protect your information. There's the standard account enumeration attack, because it will respond when the account does not exist on the system. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Open relaying, SMTP relaying, lets users send email through external servers. Will be, obviously. 
uh, open email relays aren't the problem they used to be, but you still need to check for them. Spammers and attackers can use an email server to send spam or malware through an email under the guise of an unsuspecting open relay owner. And it tells you how to turn that off. Um, and it says simple countermeasures, uh, disable relay. Okay, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Enforce, here we go. Enforce authentication if your email server allows it. You might be able to require password authentication on email addresses. Okay, this is all pretty simple stuff. Email header disclosures. If your email client and server are configured with the typical default, a hacker might find critical pieces of information like the internal IP addresses of your client's machine, the software versions of your email client and server along with their vulnerabilities, or host names that can divulge your network naming conventions and structure. Uh, also malware. Mal email systems are regularly attacked by such malware, viruses, and worms. Verify your antivirus software is actually working. Yeah. And those are some simple SMTP hacks. Um, let's see. All right, let's talk about POP, the post office protocol. Not if you so were alive in the 90s and sent email, you were probably using POP or POP3. In computing, the post office protocol is an application layer internet standard protocol used by e local email clients to retrieve email from a remote ah, I can't talk tonight from a remote server over a TCP/IP connection. And uh, basically what happens is it supports uh, download and delete access to remote mailboxes. So when a message is delivered to a POP address and you download it, the message stays on the server and it gets copied to your local machine. Every couple of weeks, and this is configurable in most email clients, um, even though this is a server level operation, it, it will purge the, it'll purge your account and then it'll allow you to send more mail. You could also, of course, manually delete stuff because especially back then, a lot of people had a really low email limit of, you know, a few megabytes. And a lot of email, back, most email also back then was plain text, so it didn't really take up that much space. POP1, much like HTML1, was never really, never saw the light of day. POP1 was specified in RFC 918 in 1984. POP2 was specified in 1985. And POP3 in 1988. Uh, the original POP3 spec supported only an unencrypted user pass login mechanism or the berkeley.rhost access control. POP3 currently supports several authentication methods to provide varying levels of protection against illegitimate access to a user's email. And we can contrast that with the Internet Message Access Protocol, or IMAP, which is, I think, more modern mail is delivered over IMAP these days than it yeah, is with POP. Yeah, uh, Most mail servers are actually trying to, I think, deprecate POP. And I don't see... I mean, I don't see a reason to use POP over IMAP if you can. Mm -hmm. Unless unless you're, you go back in time to the mid-90s and you don't really have the good of an internet connection and you need to download all your mail for two weeks. But then if something new happens, you won't really see it on time, so whatever. But... The Internet Message Access Protocol, or IMAP, is another Internet Standard Protocol that runs on the application layer. It was designed with the goal of permitting complete management of an email box by multiple clients. Therefore, clients generally leave messages on the server until the user explicitly deletes them. Uh, IMAP listens on port 143, and IMAP over SSL, or IMAP-S, is assigned the port 993. Uh... Most modern email systems, if they offer a vanilla way of accessing your email, use IMAP. Uh, 
Um, let's see. Where was the... Uh, advantages over pop. It has connected and, dis- and disconnected modes of operation. So you could have an offline mode. And then it'll sync your changes back to the server when it gets back online. Multiple clients simultaneously connected to the same inbox like your phone and your iPad and your desktop. Access to my message parts in partial fetch. Now, I'd like to think that any... And this is more of a client thing necessarily than a protocol level. It says, usually all internet mail is transmitted in MIME format. We'll get to that in a second. Allowing messages to have a tree structure where the leaf nodes are any of a variety of single part content types and the non-leaf nodes are any of a variety of multi-part types. What? Oh! I get it. IMAP 4 protocols allow the clients to retrieve any of the individual MIME parts separately and also to retrieve portions of the individual parts of the entire message. These mechanisms allow clients to retrieve the text portion of a message without retrieving attached files or to stream input or to stream content as it is being fetched. Interesting. So IMAP allows you to get a preview of the message without downloading it. That's pretty cool. Yep, I think that's how Gmail does its uh, little... Uh, I'd or, hope that's how, say, or anybody, Outlook. i say anybody. how Inbox does their little thing. Well, I, I'd, I'd like to think it's anybody that uses, that does the preview. Well, with Inbox, you can do like the little, just drag on your phone, drag down the box, and you can get uh, as much of the email that fits in the box as possible. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, message state information, multiple mailboxes on the same server, server-side searches, and a built-in extension mechanism reflecting the experience of earlier internet protocols. IMAP4 defines an explicit mechanism by which it may be extended. Well, that's nice. It has some disadvantages, but everything does. And it looks like mm. we're 45 minutes in. we got to hurry up. Yeah, how about we uh, talk about that mime type now? Yes. Okay, here we go. Not saying anything because it's a mime. Multi-purpose internet mail extensions. Oh, mimes don't talk. <laughs> Shh. Okay. They don't, okay, have, that, they don't have that Time to time. come out of the yeah. glass box. Okay. That you call a closet. I am a cloon. Multi-purpose internet mail extensions are MIME. Is, are, an internet standard that extends the format of email to support text and character sets other than ASCII, non-text attachments like audio, video, images, or anything, message bodies with multiple parts, header information, and non-ASCII character sets like internationally. Virtually all human written internet mail and a far, fairly large portion of automated mail is tra- transmitted via SMTP is in MIME format. MIME is specified in six linked RFC memoranda, and it'll list them all out, with the integration with SMTP email specified in detail in an additional RFC. Basically, these are your MIME types that, for the uh, HTTP world. Yes, although MIME was designed mainly for SMTP, the content types defined by MIME standards are also of importance in communications protocols outside of email, such as HTTP. Servers insert the MIME header at the beginning of any web transmission so you can see what you're down- the type of what you're downloading. There are t- t- MIME-specific headers like MIME-version, content-type, content-disposition, content-transfer encoding. That uh, eh, should have been turned off. Um, MIME also supports the encoded word. I believe Google calls this puny type. It's a way to incorporate non... It's, it's to reduce... Well, puny type is a specific type of Unicode for very small Unicode encodings. I, I saw 
while researching this, I saw some article about someone trying to encode a domain name that had it was like umlaut like u umlaut at example dot com, and because all of this stuff only supports ASCII and the u with the umlaut is not natively supported, I guess uh, you have to encode it with Punitype or using which is probably an implementation of this the encoded word. Mm-hmm. Correct. In this specific example. It has. It uses the uh, the token equals question mark. So the form is equals question mark the character set. Sorry, question mark the encoding question mark the encoded text and then a question equals at the end. I'm guessing you'll also have to escape question marks in the code. Um, yeah, multi part messages. Now this is where email really gets fun. A my multi-part message. If you've ever opened up a message that you receive from one of the, in one of these programs and you open it up in plain text, it is big, because modern email contains all of these mime parts. If you have any, which which describe a lot of stuff, and a lot of them include include base sixty four encoded binary data. That's how you can transmit binary data over ASCII. The problem is, is that base sixty four stuff inflates the file size by twenty to thirty percent. A my multi-part message contains a boundary in the content type header, which could be anything. Usually, I mean, it should be something that doesn't occur in the message. Uh, is placed between the parts at the beginning and end of the body message as follows, and it gives an example. There are multi-part subtypes. The MIME standard defines various multi-part message subtypes which specify the nature in mes- of the message parts and their relationship to one another. The subtype is specified in the content type header of the overall message. So if you see a content type with multi-part slash something, then, it'll give, then it means it has multiple things in it. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. Different multi-parts are mixed, which has, I guess, mixed anything. Uh, digest, which is a simple way to send multiple text messages. Message uh, contains an email message, including any headers, useful for forwarding. Alternative uh, includes something that could be different a different format denoted by its content type header. I don't know why that's different from mixed. Anyway, uh, related, report, signed, encrypted, form data, mixed dash replace. Uh, X mixed replace was developed as part of a technology to emulate server push and streaming over HTTP. Interesting. All parts of a mixed replace message have the same semantic meaning. However, each part invalidates, replaces the previous part as soon as it is received completely. Do you know what this is? Um, vaguely. (laughs) Originally developed by Netscape, it is still supported by Mozilla, Firefox, Chrome, Safari, and Opera, but traditionally ignored by Microsoft. Yeah. Commonly used in IP cameras is the MIME type for MJPEG streams. Interesting. And then there's the last one is Byte Range. So that's how you can declare your content types for multiple files and then send them over email. And it'll encode, like I said, all of your binary stuff in ASCII, which does inflate the file size, but allows you to transmit it over the internet. Now, there's, been, there's S-MIME. And because this was written by people in their 50s, and they harkened for the 1980s, they have S-MIME. S-MIME. Mm. Like OS-2. PC-2. Yeah. What? I mean, it just says secure. It, the idea is... Yeah, but okay, but you don't have... It's not... SSL is not secure slash socket layer. You know? It's uh, not HTTP slash security. 
It just it's, it's S. Anyway, okay, okay. The slash is what I'm getting at because it reminds me of the 1980s. Is a standard S mime standard for public key encryption and signing of mime data? S mime is on an IETF standards track and defined in a number of documents. Most importantly, some RFCs. And I didn't turn on the notes. Uh, okay. S-MIME provides the following cryptographic security services for electronic messaging so, applications. Wait, bas- wait, really quickly. Really quickly, I'm just going to list this off. Authentication, okay. message integrity, non-repudiation of origin, privacy, and data security. And it has its own MIME content type, which is PKCS7-MIME. Hmm. So basically, MIME type, uh, S-MIME type is, are MIME, type, MIME types for uh, in- encrypted payloads. I mean, it wouldn't... Right, right. So it's the wrapper for something that's already encrypted. No, it's, no? Defining, the, it's defining the type of the encrypted stuff. It's defining the type... Oh, it's metadata. It's a MIME type. But it's not actually encryption. No, it's just defining the MIME type for encrypted payloads. Interesting. Before S-MIME can be used in any of the above applications, one must obtain and install an individual key or certificate from either one's in-house CA or from a public CA. The accepted best practice is to use separate private keys for signature and for encryption, as, the, as this permits escrow of the encryption key without compromise to the non-repudiation property of the signature key. Are you sure this isn't encrypted? No, it, it it can be encrypted. Oh, I'm sorry. S mime doesn't do the encryption; it just tells about the encryption. Is that it? Yes. Ah, okay. S mime is sometimes considered not properly suited for use via webmail. Though support can be hacked into a browser, some security practices require the private key to be kept accessible to the user, but inaccessible from the webmail server, complicating the key advantage of webmail, which is providing ubiquitous accessibility. However, S mime is tailored for end-to-end security. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, um, and maybe any... now we should move on to the actual email authentication, which is a pretty interesting area. It is. Uh, let's see. You got things like Mime the touch upon G- uh, PGP ah, signatures. Here we go. Other within... modern additions to email standards. So one modern addition was the multiple domain, multiple accounts per domain. Mm-hmm. Um, email authentication. Then, like, like I was saying, uh, we touched upon the PGP signatures, which provide identity, not really authentication. But then you got things like uh, DNSSEC as uh, uh, something that uh, not many public. Uh, well, DNS is DNSSEC different support, from DKIM? But it, it is something that's coming down the pipeline to actually say that th- this domain is in fact this domain uh, from a uh, more secure standpoint. So that way, that MX record, yeah, you can be a lot more confident in is in fact that MX record. But is, how how much different is uh, DNSSEC from what already exists today, which is DKIM, domain key domain keys identified mail, which is another. Well, that's more method. email specific, but that's not for actually finding the MX record necessarily. DNSSEC is more of a, just a generalized DNS. Oh, just for the DNS standard, okay. and this DKIM is, for, is the, for the email itself. Yes, and uh, ah. DN, and this is for the MX record specific, in this specific case. Where instead of, uh, because actually bulk of the internet's DNS uh, requests uh, come over UDP. And that can be hijacked a lot more easily than TCP, which bulk of the TCP DNS requests are actually coming from Google right now. And uh, those are uh, are much harder to hijack. 
and uh, interestingly, it's also are most a bit of them coming efficient. from Google because so many people use Google's DNS servers. No, just Google is a bit more. Uh, they see the benefit in doing DNS over TCP. It's a bit harder to develop at scale for the DNS server side. Huh. But it is also the fact that uh, while connections are a bit more difficult to manage than just sending packets out, it is the case that, uh, at least with Google, uh, there's a few other, uh, actually mostly Chinese uh, DNS resolvers that will use DNS, uh, DNS over TCP, but they set up a connection per request, while uh, Google t- tends to, uh, within a certain amount of time, have an open TCP connection. I'll send multiple requests down a single connection. Interesting. Google's messing with a lot of stuff these days. Um, well, actually, anyone in DNS is uh, more than... I'd say has implemented DNS over TCP, at least, and are uh, gunning for DNSSEC. Interesting. Uh, so I guess when we finally get to DNSSEC, we'll still have things like DKIM and SPF, which is well, the sender policy uh, framework. How about uh, you tell us what uh, DKIM is? DKIM, not DKNY. Uh, did, did I say that? <laughs> Uh, <coughs> is an email authentication method. Uh, it as- lets a domain associate its name with a message by affixing a digital signature to it. Verification is carried out using the signer's private key published in the DNS record itself, and so you add a text record to the to uh, the MX. No, no, no. So you add a text record to the DNS records for yeah, your domain. Yeah, it's a separate record. Uh, yeah, that has the pri- that has the public key for this digital signature. Now, well, if you're putting the public key in there, that's no longer a text record, actually. It's, uh, the proper use would actually be a cert record. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so there's... In this respect, D, uh, DKIM differs from end-to-end digital signatures because their signatures are not visible to end users, and they're usually affixed or verified by the infrastructure so no one actually sees it. There's That's used in conjunction with SPF, not the suntan lotion stuff, but the sender policy framework which is another way to detect email spoofing and provide email authentication by allowing email exchangers to check that incoming mail from is, is basically uh, validated through a block list, I believe, or that, it's, that it validates through a block list and it's actually coming from the domain that it says it is, and it uses another specially formatted text record. Um, the list of authorized sending hosts from a domain is published in the DNS records for that domain. So actually the whole list, or probably a link to the list or something, is uh, published in the DNS records for that domain, and then when you, and then that's a simple way to validate if your message can make it in. Email spam and phishing also used forged from addresses, so publishing and checking SPF records can be considered anti-spam techniques. Uh, breaks plain message forwarding. Uh, when a domain publishes an SPF fail policy, legitimate users sent to receivers forwarding their mail to third parties may be rejected and or bounced. Um, yeah. Hmm. So an example of SPF is it says, uh, example.com, period, because it's a fully qualified domain name, in text, and it says V equals SPF1, and then it just has IP ranges. IP4 colon 192.0.2.0. And then another IP4 range, and then some other commands. So it's actually giving ranges of IP addresses in the text record for the DNS. Uh, and if your machine is not on one of those message, uh, one of those ranges, then you don't get this in the mail. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, it has some other syntax and more advanced qualifiers and modifiers to really. So it's it's actually pretty robust. 
Uh, I'm always fascinated by ways of encoding text in plain text fields that let you do cool stuff like this. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So that's uh, that's the sender policy framework. Nice. Um, there's the there's of course transport layer security, and mm-hmm. uh, and SSL for email, which um, just in, encrypts all of your traffic end to end. So, but what happens with email? It's really funny because this is built on top of the existing SMTP server. You'll get a hello from these servers. You'll get oh, hello. Yeah, but you'll say hello to them, and they'll say hello back. But but then, if you don't, it, they'll expect almost to start TLS. A lot of times, if it's enabled and you just send a regular plain text message, it'll reject it. But it just starts sending encrypted text to you over the wire, and you don't necessarily know what to do because it's encrypted. So if that happens to you and you're, let's say, a world-class politician, you can make a law that says encryption should be illegal, and then you'll be able to read the contents of the message. Isn't that great? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's you know the way to... Every country should have their own internet. That's how it should be. And, they, and then the country how manages was. how that internet's encrypted or not. So that way the entire country can just see what's going on in that internet. And then all the British government will be so happy that way. Well, the British government wants to be the purveyor of internet regulations. The premier country for internet regulations in the world. Man, if anybody loves regulations, it's got to be the British. But, (laughs) um, let's see. Uh, There's the, I think that's, that's it for email authentication. We talked about... Uh, oh yeah, and the first few lines of an email header are usually trusted, which is probably bad because, like I said, this is all text, easily fudgeable, um, unless you go, th- unless you do all of the things to that we just talked about to authenticate and to make sure that it's actually you and to make sure that the server that you're using is properly secured and authenticating. There's of course spam, and in fact, we introduced a law about spam in 2003. Done by our last buffoon president, W. Yeah. I mean, sounds like it was a pretty good move. But it actually was a great move. Honestly, it, I'm amazed it's not named the um, Nigerian Prince Act. There you go. Uh, it's called the Controlling the Assault of Non-Solicited Pornography and Marketing Act. How about the Porn Storm? That sounds so specific. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm. Yeah. How about yeah? How about porn storm wars? Um, it plays on the word canning, or putting an end to spam. Get it? Can spam? Mm. Um, the Can Spam Act is occasionally referred to by critics as the You Can Spam Act because the bill fails to prohibit many types of email spam. Ah, uh, there it is. And preempt some state laws. This was W. Prevent some state law. I mean, it was Congress. Preempt preempt some state laws that would otherwise have provided victims with practical practical means of redress. In particular, it does not require emailers to get permissions before they send marketing messages. It also prevents states from enacting stronger anti-spam protections and prevents individuals who receive spam from suing spammers. Hmm. This, lack, this act also has been largely unenforced. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good job. Well, we tried. We <laughs> raised awareness, we tried, and then we failed. And uh, now we haven't done anything. Yeah, we get a participation trophy. It's great. <laughs> um, yes. So, we've we've reached our hour, Christian. Mm-hmm. It's midnight. Yep. Time to turn into a pumpkin. Do you turn into a pumpkin? Yep. And we were going to talk about the... Re- we just I did guess all you the... leave your glass slipper, or... I don't, yeah. I don't know. 
I mean, I could I could just keep going and then and then edit in responses from you from earlier episodes. <laughs> I'd be. I impressed. have the raw audio. I could do that. Um, but I think we may have to leave this for a part two. So now that we gave everybody the boilerplate for email, we can talk about the cool stuff like HTML. You know, we can't just let this go because. There's all this stuff about responsive emails, how to make a responsive email, how to make a hybrid email. Mm. We can talk about that next time. I'll give you this as a tease. That, and I'll, I will try to have more of a happy ending with this show. As we're number 21, <laughs> our show, well first, we're number 21, our show is old enough to drink, on the 21st. Hey, look at that. Ho ho. I want to, try, I want to start trying to have an, a happy ending to these shows. Pardon the pun. And... <laughs> The happy ending to this show is that there is actually a modern way of developing responsive emails. It's called MJML, and it's another uh, uh, middleware markup, markup language. language. Sorry, Michael Jackson markup language. Yes, no, Michael Jordan markup language, <laughs> sponsored by yeah. Nike. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what it's called because they don't even say it. Wow, well, good job, I, guys. I anyway. know a lot of places put out like frameworks for, year, for years. Well, the thing is, is that email is much harder to develop than a regular web page. Oh, absolutely, because you can't many send over like well, no, multiple no. files. Well, there's, I mean, there's that. There's also the vast, there's the plethora of clients that don't adhere to any standards. There's the inability to target the clients with hacks like you can with browsers. And there are basically... There's not really many standards for email, so you're writing it in this horrible mix of 1997 HTML and 2017 HTML. There are responsive emails, but you have to use responsive CSS with ancient HTML because that's how email works these days. But with MJML, which I can't believe... I'm trying to look for this. There's not... It doesn't actually say what the hell this stands for. Maybe what? they just like everything on the web is an acronym. We need to be an acronym. There's no other way to go about it. Basically, uh, sorry, I had to well, sneeze. Um, yeah. well, let's, on anyway, note, MJ on, on that note, MGML <laughs> is a React-based HTML email framework. How's really? that? How's that for modern? You can actually well, make a React app that creates HTML. Th- does email. it spit out an HTML email, or is it actually run in the browser? Or Why don't we answer that, that question next time? Uh, it runs in the nice. browser. <laughs> Boo. No, well, I mean, the example they have is is like a Gmail mockup, but okay. it allows you. It says it, it allows you to have things like carousels in email, which you can't really do. Uh, Gmail is starting to allow some JavaScript. Uh, but we can talk about the e- the modern email and dealing with modern email in part two of this discussion. But now you have the whole bedrock for the email system and how all of the message sending works. So next time we can talk about actually making email. And that sounds ridiculous because you can fart out an email message and it just gets to somebody's phone like that. But it's all of this complex stuff has to happen in a precise order and everything has to be encrypted and decrypted and sent and received in a certain way. It's pretty marvelous how the modern world works. Yeah. Come a long way from ones and zeros. Exactly. Or Morse code. So, yep. on that note, I believe it's time to end. So, Christian, do you approve the first part of this pull request? Looks good to me. Well, then hopefully we can see you all next week for part two. I'll go ahead and hit merge.
And we'll do that thing I just said and see you all next week right here on Polar Quest. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries.